Life Raft Diagnostic 003. Hyperdrive 40%. Oxygen 42%. Digital AI Power 86%. My Mood Disciplined. Purposeful. Or at least trying to be. Check the box and move to the next task of the day in order to stay sharp. In order to fight the occasional shortness of breath that must surely be my imagination. My anxiety. Some kind of psychosomatic reaction from watching the oxygen gauge creep past the halfway point. Initiating its impending descent to zero. Nonetheless, I try to stay focused. To regulate my breathing like they taught us in the academy so many lives ago. At 42% oxygen, I have close to 90 days remaining. Which should be more than enough leeway for the next approaching station to locate me. I've risked my life to optimize this raft's beacon, and the broadcast is as strong as this pod can transmit, so hope is still very much alive for me. I still have time. Time passes strangely while in exile, a temporal confusion that began with a blurring of days as my body adjusted to the thinner air levels and cryohydrated rations. But later, even after clarity set in, my overall sense of it had changed almost entirely. Sometimes hours on end seemed to move with the slowness of a transit barge, trudging and sprawling across the cosmos as if in defiance of the fleeting vessels around it. But sometimes the opposite would occur. Hours would pass in deceptive waves, doubling or tripling with every advance, leaving gaps in my days unaccounted for, with no real evidence around me to suggest otherwise. It was as if we had passed through a wormhole while I slept, or perhaps during those first few days when I lay half-conscious reeling from my concussion. Nowadays, my only direct measure of time comes from Bean's display, when she isn't using her monitor to fully interact, or when she isn't powered down. Even in standby, she displays a digital clock that sometimes haunts me in my sleep, a pale green illusion of advancing numbers that both seduce and taunt. But I've also come to measure the progression of my days from the subtle sounds of the raft triggering its routine processes and cycles. Space is quiet, but if you listen closely, there are sounds beneath the surface that help us reacclimate to reality. Vital repetitions that our brains latch onto immediately, grasping at any semblance of order and rhythm to tell us where we are and what we should be doing. 
For me, the quiet flushing of the ventilation system tells me that it's early morning. The brief but warming hum of the hyperdrive kindler signals midday. And the grumbling of the cabin pressure regulator tells me that in about five minutes, Bean will play those familiar night songs and I will welcome the comfort of my pillow just before lamenting that another day has passed. In the days that immediately followed my excommunication, once I had regained my bearings and nursed my wounds, I became acquainted with the raft, at least on the surface. Nothing out of the ordinary at first blush. A standard evac pod with a minimalist interior, white, sterile, smooth. A HUD-infused rectangular window centered on the starboard side. Across from it, a bunk bed bolted into the hull. To the left of the window was the hatchway that sealed my tomb, and to the far right, toward the stern of the pod, the latrine. The bow held a small dinette surrounded by half-empty ration bins and a line of tubing columns with the foremost column housing the raft's nav board and transponder. In the middle of the raft, perhaps its only real eye candy, sat the main console and transmission board, with a bulkhead above it that contained rows of recessed lighting and a concealed sublevel beneath it that housed the minuscule hyperdrive. The main console was mostly to satisfy passenger curiosity. After all, this was a life raft, not a station, and the AI handled anything essential for the pod's operation. The monitors enabled me to visualize what the raft already knew about its condition, our whereabouts, and our proximity to other vessels. There was no course to plot or maintain. No need for a pilot here. We were drifting, not flying and our hyperdrive's only short-term purpose was to keep the lights on and the air circulating for as long as it was equipped to. I knew it without even looking at the diagnostic readout, as I had become an expert in the discipline of spacing. I had six months. I say it now facetiously, but at first, it did feel like an unintended gift. Six months of independence. A chance to see the cosmos as it was meant to be seen. An adventure in an otherwise routine existence. No orders to follow. No shifts to log. Sure, I would miss flying the station. But it would be a minor setback in the grand scheme of this curse-turned-blessing. The adrenaline that I felt wasn't brought on by the fear of death, but rather the nervous anticipation of every opportunity that would soon unfold before me. And perhaps the worry that they might vanish before I have time to react. After a little over a week in my raft, I learned that I wasn't the only one who was celebrating this unexpected freedom. 
One night, I was awakened by the onboard AI pinging a nearby beacon. This process triggered the bulkhead lights to activate dimly, giving me a view of the board when I finally climbed down from my top bunk. It was another life raft, hailing the same sigil as mine, and just beyond it, an untethered cosmonaut hailing the same. With the transmission decoded in seconds, I couldn't believe the names displayed on the board. Tulane and Henson. Two of my fellow co-pilots from the station, and decade-long friends. Both now becoming visible from the left side of my window, slowly approaching, clearly having suffered the same or similar fate as me. Tulane had served for nearly 15 years, and as it turned out, he was also exiled in a raft with six months' juice. Only his raft was a recycle, so the thing looked old and rusty. Henson wasn't as lucky. With a little under a decade of service, he was clothed in a mere cosmonaut suit with 90 days air and rations. Presently floating upright to our position, but occasionally inverting as solar winds bumped him around. I would learn that both pilots were spaced an hour after me, and within that time, those who remained in the safety of the station were glued to the blurry windows, squinting to see the show of jettisoned bodies and pill-shaped coffins littering the horizon. Tulane was ambushed and sealed in his raft without safety restraints, in an experience very similar to my own. Henson was cuffed on the bridge while ending his shift, given a quick injection of adrenaline, suited, and launched through an evacuation tube. While traveling at the near speed of light in nothing more than a suit and helmet seems absolutely terrifying, Henson's spacing was likely the most painless. As if by chance, we had floated into a convergence zone, often referred to as cosmic doldrums, gifting us nearly two hours of time together before the drift would resume and our paths would once again randomize. During our brief conclave, we told stories of our days on the station, laughing and reminiscing about our colleagues, our orders, our various predicaments. We mourned together, questioning our fates and cursing the very hyperdrive we served for nearly half our lives. It didn't make sense, and it made all the sense in the world at the same time. And no matter what, we would find a way to continue. With a surge of positivity that only companionship can generate, our awkward, floating celebration of freedom was perfect. That is, until Tulane's raft abruptly sounded a warning, signaling a leak in the primary O2 chamber. Startled, Tulane scrambled to interpret his situation, powerless for the most part as the onboard AI attempted to troubleshoot. Henson began yelling, pointing furiously at the top of the malfunctioning pod. And there we could see a pinhole rupture spewing oxygen, 
small pieces of metal starting to peel away and widen the puncture. The inside of Tulane's raft was now soaked in red lighting, the main console erupting in alarm bells and indicators, scrambling our transmissions until all we could hear were his screams for help. Henson and I watched in motionless horror as suddenly and without warning, Tulane's faulty life raft expelled its oxygen supply. As soon as the onboard AI detected that its passenger was deceased, it promptly released the hatchway door, welcoming the vacuum of space to help flush the cabin. Anything that wasn't bolted down found its way out of the pod, including the now crystalline body of my friend. Once flushed, the raft closed its hatch and enabled recovery mode, transmitting a new beacon that would allow an allied station to reel it back in. As if on cue, the doldrums had subsided, and our drifts began to resume. Henson's body now trembling and his voice sobbing into his transponder, until he vanished from sight. But Tulane's frozen husk hadn't drifted away just yet. It lingered no more than ten feet from my window, his pale blue eyes fixed just beyond me, a dead glare asking space itself, why have you forsaken me? It was at this moment and in the days ahead that I would perceive the full gravity of my situation. I fell back onto the floor, still staring out the window long after Tulane's body had drifted away. My tragic encounter with both pilots was the last time that I had seen or spoken with anyone else. Anyone human, that is. This is my chronicle for anyone out there receiving this transmission.